You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. I am I am very 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 excited about this series. This is a uh, um We've talked about prayer for a long time, and we're going we're gonna to get into that just in just a second. But we're, we've started a series. We started it several months ago. Um, I believe it was August that we started the series. Um, and I thought we were going to be done with all of it by December. And here we are in January starting the second half of it which has been great. The, the journey of understanding prayer in a more in-depth, for me personally, has been profound and it has been incredibly freeing for me, just in my relationship with the Lord and just in prayer and in examining prayer, what happened, and I've heard, I heard this quote today, it is dangerous for Christians to become too familiar with a passage of Scripture. Because what ends up happening, as all of us have experienced, and Randy pointed this out to us years ago, is that we would read over scriptures that we've read a million times. And all of a sudden, the significance in the words, we totally read past them because we're familiar with the passage and we miss what the passage is saying. And in examining prayer, in the word of prayer, and being hyper-focused on where it comes up in scripture, I was now able, the Lord was now able to reteach me a lot of things correctly and re-examine things in the way it's it's meant to look like just understanding this process of of fasting and understand that the things that have kept me from it have been definitions that have been defined to me by people that are not of God that it is uncomfortable and inconvenient says who not those that walk with the spirit of God Because the Spirit of God belongs to the God of comfort. So how can it be uncomfortable? And it was made for us to participate in. We were literally made to be a part of that process. How can it be inconvenient? That would be like saying breathing is inconvenient. No, it isn't. It keeps me alive. It is is necessary to my daily function. And, And prayer in our prayer life... And understanding these aspects of it are necessary for our walk and our relationship with God. He created these things with purpose. Not, he didn't stumble into, oh, this is a good idea. I think I'll make them not eat for a while. No, there's purpose, significance in it. And we got to see that in prayer. And now I'm excited to examine this with worship. But the reason I'm so excited about, about this part of the study and getting into worship is because in prayer... I may or may not get to see it reflected in your life. I may or may not get to see how this has directly impacted your relationship with God, but the prayer part of this study is incredibly personal and incredibly individual, individualistic, because prayer is tied to our relationship, our individual relationship with God. Now, If you're walking and you have a deep relationship with God and I'm walking and have a deep relationship with God, when I pray, the spirit in you is 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 uh, is receiving and the things that are being said are resonating. And when you pray, the spirit in me is everything is resonating with me. 
And, but I don't, you don't necessarily see that, and I don't necessarily see that. But with worship, this is something tangible. Worship is something we do every Sunday. We don't all get up and pray over the congregation every Sunday. We don't all get into the mic. I mean, there, there are maybe three or four people that will pray during a Sunday. And that's all we'll get to hear. But every single one of us at the same time participates in worship. And so that's why I'm excited about this. I'm excited about this study uh, just because it has already gone in a direction that I was not expecting. I did not expect for us to start where we're starting, but it blew my mind. Blew my mind to begin to examine a passage that we're going to look at that we've read thousands of times and never considered the significance in relation to worship that this passage holds. So I'm very excited about that. But just to start, again, what is worship? Well, first, again, we know that prayer is very much tied to our relationship with God, and worship is no different. It is a part, it is an aspect and a tool uh, around and involved and intertwined with our relationship with God. But understanding worship, um, as you will see through this study, will greatly benefit your prayer life. It, it will greatly enrich our prayer life. Just in my short amount of time that I've been reflecting on this, off of prayer, moving to worship, gearing my mind, starting to focus on this, allowing this to be the thing that I think about often, I've already seen and can feel the impacts it will have on my prayer life. And now this is very different for me. You have to understand that you're talking to a worshiper. And I, 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 am, I am teaching you from a, from a topic that I, I know very well because it's what I've done. If we look at what I've done in my life of ministry, worship has been the main thing that I've done up to this point in my life. I still am just profoundly blessed that I get to do it every Sunday that I get to be a part of leading worship. I am greatly blessed. And I thought when I first got here, honestly, I didn't think the drums were going to last very long. I'm grateful for the endurance of people to get, some people to get used to it. And, now, and then a lot of people that didn't like it would, if I wasn't there, would come up to me after and be like, why aren't you playing? I need the drums. I miss the drums. So I'm grateful for that process. Um, grateful for Jay getting to play with him. He's taught me more about worship than any worship pastor I have ever played with, and I've played with a lot of them. Played with a lot of them. I've played in the, this is the smallest venue I've ever been a part of leading worship in, and it has been the most profound for me. The smallest, stripped down, consistently small group of people, and it has drastically changed my life with worship. And it's, it, again, it's what I've done. This is what saved me and my relationship with God was the drums and using it to praise His name. I wouldn't have a relationship with, with God. If, and I can trace it back to uh, high school. We had just moved to Katy, Texas from Oklahoma. I was mad at the world, mad at my parents. Ripped me out of, out of high school, away from my friends that I've grown up with my entire life. And now I'm plucked and sat down here in Texas. And I hated every bit of it. But I was a drummer. My mom was working at a church. And they had a, a junior high worship band. And they had tryouts. And I tried out. I played a song by Evanescence. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that. It's not a Christian band. They're not a non-Christian band, but they're not a Christian band. And uh, I played, and that youth pastor walked with the Spirit, 
and uh, just saw me sit down and knew that I was going to be a part of that. Um, and because of that, I mean, he, totally, he saved my life, saved my life. Um, now, I, was, I would still do a lot of stupid stuff, but I had a foundation of encounter with the Spirit from that point on because of that man. And, uh, and then when I was, you know, uh, really allowing the faith to become my own in, in college after doing all the stupid things, the drugs and all that stuff that I would get into after being freed from that, and I had no one, I met a worship leader. And he would become one of my very best friends. And that day he would interest, introduce me to another one of my very best friends. And we would, we would create a band and we would travel the country and we would make albums and we would lead worship and we would play with big names. And, uh, and we got to do amazing things, amazing things. And then we would be a part of starting an on-campus worship-only ministry that is still going to this day that happens in the heart of SFA's campus. Um, worship is everything to me. It has been where I have encountered the Lord the most consistently and the most profoundly. So that's who's teaching you about worship. I know mainly from my own experiences, and there's a lot that the Lord has to teach me about it uh, that I'm excited about, a lot of things that He's going to refine, a lot of things that I've not addressed in my own worship that He's going to address in me. Before I bring to y'all, so I'm excited about this study. All that to say, I'm just I'm incredibly, incredibly excited about this study. But back to it. Real worship. Real worship is abandonment. And what does abandonment mean? It, abandonment is to leave something behind. Oftentimes to leave it behind forever. So how is worship abandonment? Real worship is the abandonment of self in pursuit of him. The complete and total abandonment of self. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is the abandonment that we're talking about. It is not my life, it's his. Paid for with a price, and he is worthy of it. That's Real worship. It is abandonment of what used to be mine that I now freely give to him and, and recognize it is his. And it is not just his because of the price he's, he's paid. It is his because he is worthy to claim it. So let's look uh, at this further by examining the first people. And this is the passage that I was just shocked by that the Lord led me to. And I'm so grateful but we're going to start by examining the first people to ever on record worship Jesus. Now, I know that there were others that worshiped, but these people were of another culture, another ethnicity, and another land. They were the first, like us, not born a Jew, not raised in a Hebrew culture, the first like us to worship Jesus. So we'll start in Matthew 2, and we'll be in verse 1. And we'll, we'll kind of slowly go through this passage. There's different things that I want to point out. Just there's some of these things that uh, are just a side tangent that are really cool for us to stop and just think about for a second. What are you doing? You're not in here. Go back to your teacher. Now, now, now. All right, those listening online, that was my son. 
who somehow escaped his teacher. He's good at it. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Something profound that I want us to recognize is that they, they say that he was born king. He wasn't elected. He wasn't. And this sets up, this sets up this, the response of them and our understanding of Jesus that he was born king. He didn't earn that when he died on the cross. He was king when he went to the cross. He was born king. And these people recognized it. These wise men, they recognized who he was. And Herod, as we know, did not like that. And uh, he shapes the culture. And so we'll, we'll keep reading in verse 3 what that means. For we saw the star, it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. We need to recognize for us here in Sundown, Texas, this reality. This verse is a verse that I've read oftentimes, but for some reason it never stuck out to me that when it said Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him was also troubled at this news. These are a people that have awaited what just happened, but they're troubled. What does that say? The one that holds the mic shapes the culture. The one placed in a position of authority will shape the culture and they will receive it the same that their leaders receive it. And we need to recognize that we have been elected by the Spirit of God to be those that hold the mic in this city. And we, in our response to the kingdom and what he does, this is a sermon, I promise you, you'll hear this again. Our response to what he's doing will shape the culture around us. We have been given that authority here because we are the sons and daughters of God operating in obedience to the Spirit of God. And what we receive or what we don't receive, because we have been placed as leaders in this community by the Spirit of God, will shape the culture around us. It will reflect that which we receive. I believe that fully and truly. And then also what we see in this passage, this is just a bit of irony, Herod assembles Pharisees and Sadducees, chief priests. He assembles those who know about him, those who know the most about their culture, those who know the most about the coming of their Messiah, those who know everything that's written about this day. He assembles those who know about him, but will never know him. Because these that know about him will be the ones that kill him. Right? So knowledge is not always the key. We see this clearly. What you know about God is not the key. Your relationship with Him is. Just because you know a lot doesn't count for anything. It counts for the impact, the personal relationship that you have with Him that carries the weight. But back to worship. Verse 5. And they told Him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, 
O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Again, the elites who know about him but never know him, only the least of these uh, knew him. We recognize that. We see that throughout Scripture that it was, it was the tax collectors, it was the prostitutes, it was the, the, the lowly fishermen that flunked out of these schools that couldn't stick up, stay in these schools of the Pharisees. These lowest of lows were the only ones that would ever receive Jesus in this time. They were the ones that would receive Him, not those that knew the most about Him. And why is that? Because they recognize, and I know this seems like a side tangent, but this is important to the lesson. Those that would receive Jesus, they recognized Jesus because they lived with an awareness of need. I think one of the biggest things that we struggle with today as American Christians is our awareness of need. Because all of us in here have what, all that we need. We have been blessed in abundance. Look at this house that we worship in. I was talking to this heat and air guy. And he's like, well, this is going to cost about this and this is going to cost about that. I was like, okay, get it. Do it. Like we're fixing insanely nice units without a question. Do it. Look at this beautiful sanctuary that we're in. Look at the beautiful outside. Look at this community. Look at the homes that we're going to go home to. We are richly blessed. And we have all that we need in the flesh, Right? And so it's easy for us to slip into this comfort that is not of God, this, this comfort that pulls us away from God because I have all I need. I have no need for Him, right? We see this repeated oftentimes in our society. So many people get into this rut. And if you are not watching for it, it is the, the most mature of Christians can slip into it. Because when things are good, God can very easily just fall to the back of our minds. Can he? Every one of us in here has understood. I'm a pastor and I'm guilty of this. My job is relationship with Jesus and, and leading people. And I can, when things are grooving and we're moving, he just falls to the back of my mind, right? But when things are heavy and when things are hard, where is he at? He's right here. And what are we? Where are you, God. Like, what about the last 10 years where you've been richly blessed? You knew I was there then. You think I just left you now? We do this. It's easy to do. So I'm not coming at this with, with any condemnation, but being there, and that's why when we go to third world countries, and this is my favorite part about going, is seeing people who all they have is Jesus. That's it. There's something so pure. So, it reflects the kingdom in such a way that I'm almost envious of. Because there's no doubt who rules their life. Because he's all they have. But what a beautiful opportunity that we have. Having so much. To be able to say, no, I count that all as lost. For him and him alone. He is truly, right? We've talked about this recently. At the end of the day, He is all we have. Because everything that we can find comfort in on this earth, on this side of heaven, can be taken. He can't. He's it. He's the only thing we're guaranteed.
right? It's this awareness of need. They lived aware of a personal need for Jesus, and that allowed them to recognize what God had placed in front of them. And that's why we see these profound things from the least of these in their cultures, right? The Lord used specifically the least of these, the rejected by society, because they were the ones that would see clearly what the Lord was placing in front of them, because all they had was Him. And they knew they needed a Savior and he presented himself to them. It's a beautiful thing. This honest humility, which is living with this awareness of my ability to fail. Now, this is something that doesn't matter what you have. We need to have as Christians. It uh, doesn't matter what we possess, materials, things that we have. But having this honest humility of, recognize, of recognizing and living with this awareness that I have this innate ability to fail. Because I can't, at the end of the day, I can't do it without it. I will fail as a husband. I will fail as a father. I will fail as a pastor without him. Because Parker can't do it without him. Otherwise, there would be no need for him. If I could do it without him, what's the point of him dying on the cross and taking on the grave? No. I couldn't do that. And I can't do this. I, can't, I couldn't save myself, so how can I lead his people without him? No. There's no way. Absolutely no way. So it's this honest humility. And I like that term. I, like, I heard Bill Johnson, he, he coined this. This is not an original for me, but honest humility. Not false humility. We see a lot of that. I, I don't know how many times I've heard pastors talking about this humility. I'm like, I'm going to call bull crap on that, pastor, because uh, you showed up in a Lamborghini. And uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't look very humble. Anyways, not... Nice cars are fine. Anyways, but this honest humility, which is just simply, again, living with the awareness of the ability to fail that produces a dependency on him. A dependency on him, recognizing, too, that we never grow out of our need for grace. And I think that's the selling point on this thing. We never grow out of our need for grace. Ever. But I think we unconsciously adopt this mentality well, that I don't really need that anymore. I had it when I needed it back here, but I don't, really, I don't really need that anymore. No, you will never outgrow your need for the grace of God. Our life depends on Him entirely. We never grow out of our need for Him. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, for the child and when you have found him, bring, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to the rest, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. There's a lot in these, this little bit to unpack, so just hang with me. The first thing. Is the gifts that they bring. They emptied their bank accounts 
to him. They offered him the most precious that they had to offer. It's the woman who saved up for a year for this perfume and then just poured it out on his feet. We see this display time and time again for Jesus where they don't offer something nice. They offer everything of value that they have, that they possess to Jesus. Because you don't offer a coin to a king. And they recognized that he was born king. That's why it was important to look at that. They recognized that he was born king and you don't offer a little bit to a king. You offer everything you have to a king. The second thing that is important for us to realize that a lot of us don't realize, they were not there the night he was born. They did not see this little baby laying in a manger. This journey is estimated to take them three to four years to get to him. They traveled far to come to him, which is profound. Let's just think about that for a second, that the spirit of God would transcend the people of God, the Jews, and begin to interact with another culture in this moment, because that's what happened. They, they encountered God through this star. They recognized the significance of it, and they immediately began to come through revelation of the Spirit. That's profound. We've never thought about that before. It's just like, oh, the wise men, that's cool. I see them right there. We've got the little display back there on the table, the three wise men standing around the baby in the manger. That's not how it happened. And the story of how it happened is so much more profound than these three wise men by happenstance just finding themselves in this place for this baby to be born. No, they traveled. They, 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 they were recipients of great and powerful revelation from a God not of their culture, not a God that they grew up listening to, learning about. They, they encountered this and they moved, and they moved to such extents that they would travel for years to worship Him. And it's to think if they're traveling with all of these valuable things, it was probably more than just three wise men. They probably had a company of people for protection. Uh, other people that helped them on their journeys. Uh, I don't know. Slaves, I don't know. But they, it was probably a group of people that made this journey. They definitely probably had some guards if they're traveling with this much precious and valuable things to offer in worship. So profound. And the really profound thing, they traveled for years to worship a child who could do nothing for them in return because he was a child. That's important to recognize in an aspect of the wise men I never considered. What could this baby do for them? They would be dead. They would be gone before the crucifixion, before the, the salvation. Now that would be for them eventually, but... This child in this moment that they were worshiping, what could he do for them? Nothing. They traveled for years to worship a child who could do nothing for them. And what this points to in worship is to worship in any way that benefits me is a subtle case of manipulation. And unfortunately, we have that widespread through the Christian church and Western civilization today. Um, for example, worshiping in response to how those around you are worshiping. That is a subtle case of manipulation. It benefits you because you blend in. You don't stand out. And we desperately, when it comes to worship, we do not want to stand out. We want to just fly below the radar. That is the culture 
of Christianity, unfortunately. And, and, and it goes two ways. I'm not talking about just, you know, the Southern Baptist hands in your pockets. You know, you mumble the words, but you don't full out get after it unless the hymnal's out. Then we're getting it. We're belting it from the gut. But if you go to a church in Houston with a lot of young people that have grown up with the fancy lights and the fog machines and stuff, and they're, they're getting after it, and you go in there and you just standing there, you're going to feel awkward, right? So what are you going to do? You're going to start moving a little bit more. You're going to clap in, getting your hands up, Whew! doing that kind of thing, because it benefits you. It's not authentic worship. You're being manipulated by, the, by your surroundings. It's, it's not a genuine offer of praise, and unfortunately, we fall into that trap. I have fallen into that trap. I don't know how many times. I go to a place, and there's a moment of worship where the Lord is not calling me to sing. He's asking me, he's, he's trying to deal with something. He's trying to invest something in me. And he needs my attention. And I feel like I should be responding in a different way because that's not the way. I remember the first time I went to a Jesus Culture concert. Uh, Jesus Culture was a big band back in the day. I mean, huge. And just the revival. They were the first worship band, in, in my opinion, that brought the Spirit of God into worship. I mean, just reckless. I mean, Kim Walker Smith was the one that made How He Loves Us famous. Wasn't written by her. She's the one that sang it. She was a part of the Jesus Culture band. And I saw them live. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't lift my hands. Not, not, because that was not the offering of praise that the Lord was asking of me. It was very different. And I didn't know how to do it. So what did I do? I faked it because everyone else around me was raising their hands. But that's a subtle case of manipulation because my response in that was only to benefit me. It was not to offer genuine praise to the Father. It's the awareness of worth that is the driving point of all worship. God himself, the gift to all humanity, which is Jesus, is worth all I have and all I am. That is what our response in worship is to come from. It is to be rooted in that reality that he is worthy of everything in me to be offered freely to him. The awareness of his worth is to be that driving point in worship. And then in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This word exceedingly is actually describing a word that is closer in the Hebrew, to a violent expression of joy. It's a, uh, well, let's look at this a little. It's, it's not a passive thought. In the Hebrew, it is not a passive, this is not a passive word at all. It's, it's not a standing in place, thinking happy thoughts kind of word. It is, it is a shout. It is a volcanic-like expression of those who recognize who he is and who they are in him. And it cannot be refrained. It must be expressed. This is what this word is, is articulating in this passage. They hadn't even seen Jesus yet. They just saw the star appear to them again that started them on this journey. And they erupted in praise. They erupted with joy. Volcanic-like expression. Violent expression. They were not just... It's, I think we get into this, uh, this understanding that the wise men were, are kind of like Spock from Star Trek. 
No emotion, blank, just very logical. But worship is sometimes wild and crazy, and that's what this passage is talking about. They, they were not just, thank you, Lord, live long and prosper. Wonderful, this is great. In a monotone voice, let us continue. No, they erupted violently. It was wild, it was crazy, their expression. And that's when we look at this, Rejoice exceedingly with great joy when we trace that back to the translation. That's what it, it's not articulating a calm event. It's articulating a, an exciting, wild expression as they're rejoicing. Because you've got to also ex- recognize that they're experiencing God for, the, for what are the first times. I don't know what that journey was, but the, the Lord is still a newish thing to these people. And they are just excited and rejoicing and, and praising um, this reckless abandonment to what the Lord is doing. The, and the purity in this, the purity of abandonment is in worship is that there are no strings attached. As we see in this first example of worship to Jesus, we see the nature of worship defined here and it is the recognition of worth, and he is worthy of everything. Worship is that recognition that he is worthy of every breath, every moment. He is worthy of all of me and expressing all that I am. When we finish worshiping on a Sunday together, our tanks, so to speak. Now, we know how the Lord, all who are thirsty, all who are hungry, come drink from the fountain. You'll never thirst again. Um, these beautiful and wonderful things. That's the paradigm of the kingdom. You can exert all of yourself and what will he do? He will just continue to overflow in you, right? We never run out. But this, at the end of our services of worship together, we should be able to look back and say, I gave all to him in praise. Um, I, I loved, this is something that my, my father, my grandfather taught me and it was something so profound for me to hear reiterated in Randy um, and I just really valued that but at the end of the day he would say my father my grandfather would say as I was going out to start earning a living and or just get a job not earning a living I was 15 I wasn't earning anything Um, I was just trying to pay for gas but he said you should be able to look back when they hand you that money and say I earned every cent of this They didn't give this to me. I worked for it. I earned it. And Randy, part of uh, my maturing as youth pastor and him him, uh, mentoring me and guiding me to eventually be in this position was that every day you should look back and say, I earned what those people have paid me. And I, I value that. And I believe the same for this is that we should look back on our times together and say, there ain't nothing left of me. I gave it all and I left it all at his feet. And yet I overflow still. That's the beauty of overflow. It's that there is never an end to the fullness of things that we can give back to him. I can give him all of me all the time and recklessly abandon and worship with complete abandonment of myself to praise his name no matter what. And it is... Ironically enough, in this example, it is wisdom to worship. As we see the wise men and their company, they traveled for years to worship 
at his feet and empty themselves before him. It's, it's that beautiful phrase uh, of a, 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 great, a, great, a society grows great when old men plant trees, the shade of which they will never sit under. And that's what these men are doing. This child isn't going to be able to do anything for him. He can't heal their ailments. He doesn't have the Spirit of God yet. He's still being equipped as a man. He can't do anything for them in this moment. And they don't care. They just want to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they did it with everything they had. And they traveled for years to lay at this child's feet and worship him. Are we willing to abandon ourselves to worship him fully? That is my prayer through this study. That in this house, what would be reflective, what would be reflected in this house in our time of worship would be the same attitude and mentality and abandonment that we see portrayed by the wise men. We would travel any distance. We would, we would give and pay any cost to worship him and worship at his feet. And the beautiful thing is, is we do not have to travel for years to one destination in the middle of the desert. We get to experience the presence of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus each and every day. I don't have to go anywhere. I just have to recognize his nearness and I can worship him at his feet with everything. And I can empty my account every day. And then what does this house look like when we come together and we worship in that place? knowing every one of us is going to lay it all at his feet and worship him with every cell, every fiber, every breath of my being, every heartbeat that beats in my chest, I will worship him with it. What does that transform this house into? And that is my prayer, that is my dream, that we could say that is how we worship. We worship as the wise men did. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.